Hello folks, welcome to the second to last episode of Meet Me in the Middle. Today's election day and it's set up to be an incredibly competitive one. It's currently uncertain if the Republicans will sweep both the House and Senate or if the Democratic Party will be able to hold any bit of their trifecta of power. Ever since the shakeup of the 2016 election, pollsters have adjusted the way they calculate polls in order to account for more Republican voters. Our current polling data shows that this election is in a dead heat. Naturally, you may be feeling anxious about this election. Whether you're a Republican in fear of two more years of Democratic ruin, or a Democrat in fear of Republican autocracy, please make yourself at home today because, oh boy, I have an election day special for you. Today we will be talking with Professor Aaron Frankenfeld from the Moody Bible Institute about political polarization. He's a good friend of mine and our discussions of politics have always been quite fruitful. He majored in international relations, and while he's chosen to teach the Bible, he has nonetheless stayed engaged with our current political situation. Uh, hello. <laughs> Thank you for having me here, Samuel. I really appreciate being invited to be here. I, I did have Samuel in class. I teach studying and teaching the Bible and teaching the Bible practicum as an adjunct at Moody. I am not an expert on electoral reform, but I'm a guy with opinions. So I'm, I'm happy to be here and happy to do this. Wonderful. Well, thank you so much for uh, coming on today. So this is a very broad topic. And as most topics in this podcast, we are very broad because being specific is hard sometimes. Uh, so there's a lot we can cover. I'd say we could start off probably what are, as, as a topic in general, what are your thoughts on the current uh, electoral system, uh, state of polarization, and we can go from there. Okay, sure. That's broad. And uh, yeah, Sorry, sorry. <laughs> that's, that's, all right. that's the nature of the game here. Fair enough, fair enough. So uh, I'm mindful of the fact that, you know, recording this on the 15th of October and recognizing that this is going to air immediately after the election, that our own feelings about polarization might be a little different in November than they are at the moment. Right now, uh, we talk about polarization, and it is somewhat of an abstract concept. It doesn't necessarily feel as much of a lived reality in the middle of October. I know that there's a lot of anger out there. I know that there are a lot of people who regard uh, their political opponents as the enemy. However, it doesn't feel the same pressing urgency in the middle of October. So with that advantage, talking about it in October, I guess what I would say is one of the things that has interested me in looking into this is the recognition of the fact that the polarization we experience in the United States is not isolated to the United States. It's, it's very easy to, to center on the self and to think, well, this is our problem and our country is so screwed up and the Democrats are ruining our country or the Republicans are horrible people or wherever you end up on the polarization and, and resentment spectrum. But this is something that's happening worldwide. And I think that uh, taking a step back, thinking about it as a global phenomenon, is probably going to be very helpful in making sure that we are processing it, engaging with it in constructive ways rather than with, with hopelessness or with despair. Do you have a working definition? We should probably define polarization. Our working definition <clears throat> of polarization is that there are borderline irreconcilable divides on both sides of the spectrum that... Uh, prevent both sides from working together towards a common legislative goal. In the first episode, we mentioned a lot about the change in party system that we had here where when we were under a New Deal party system, we focused on uh, aspects of 
tangible tangible qualities in our in our disagreements. Should this government program cover X, Y, and Z? What's the scope of these new regulations? Uh, so they were so both Democrats and Republicans were focused on uh, more of a concrete kind of uh, policy focused uh, discussion. Sometime in the '90s, with our good friend uh, Newt Gingrich, uh, that system kind of changed very much more in a radical sense to where we were much more fighting about more abstract terms such as culture, whether abortion should be illegal, uh, effect of uh, education on children, and all the myriad of issues we are under now. So we've defined polarization as now being more so abstract in cultural sense and identity sense where Republicans typically live isolated from other Democrats and vice versa. So we no longer live with each other and are we're coming at it from two different cultures almost so that helps yeah no i think that's those are important components of it right the the ongoing culture war uh is not necessarily something that has existed since the beginning of the country there is something new about the culture war and there's something much newer about the intensity with which the culture war is uh combated and i i think that's really an important point and and you struck on two things that i want to make sure that everybody catches right the first of which is the question of identity and the second of which is is the question of politics as combat, functionally. So let me take a step back, and we'll start with the second of those, politics as combat. It's important to recognize that in democratic elections, there are always going to be competing ideas. It does not have to be the case that two competing political parties regard each other as the enemy. There's this famous story, and if I were a smarter person, if I were a true political scientist, I would remember who it entails. But there's a recently elected uh, member of the House of Representatives who is speaking with an elder statesman in the House of Representatives from his own party. And I believe the, the narrator of the story, again, this is a, a true story. I just don't remember who it was. I believe they're Democrats. And the congressman says to this elder statesman, he's ready to engage the enemy, the Republicans. And the elder statesman puts his arm around his shoulder and says, son, the Republicans are not the enemy. They're the enemy. And he points towards the Senate chamber. There was a time in American politics when the House was the House, the Senate was the Senate, and they regarded each other as enemies. But the enemies weren't Republican versus Democrat. That is, I think, very clearly no longer the case. We regard, if we, if we are intensely partisan, we regard the other party as an enemy. And I was reading an article from the Carnegie Endowment, uh, which was making the case that, you know, polarization exists on a spectrum. And I think very often when we talk about it, we think of it as a binary. Either you are polarized or you are not polarized. Whereas, in, obviously, there are gradations. There, there is a spectrum in, at play. And the extreme end of polarization is where it is an us versus them uh, form of combat. If, if the enemy wins, then what you cherish is at stake. And this is where that first item that I, I wanted to talk about comes into play, the question of identity. If I'm beginning to place my identity in a particular political affiliation, then the triumph of the other side becomes a threat to my very being. It becomes a threat to my family. It becomes a threat to my value system. It becomes a threat to all that I hold dear. And when people's identities are under threat, they will fight to protect their identities. Exactly. So polarization, I think it's important to recognize it's combat and it's about identity. So the state we're in right now, probably after this election, we're going to be seeing both of these play out in very concrete um, manners. We see a lot of runoff elections, uh, 
inconclusive results, probably some uh, denial of the fairness of certain elections. So that uh, combat is going to probably increase uh, tenfold. There are some rumors floating around online that probably the day after midterms, our uh, dear leader and friend uh, Donald J. Trump is going to announce his uh, run for the uh, nomination in 24. Uh, Whether that remains to be uh, unfounded or not, we will see. And if he survives uh, not getting uh, indicted here in the next couple of weeks, uh, we will also see. So what would your ideas be um, and what polarization could look like in the future with the operating on the same framework uh, of it being uh, the battle between uh, identity and the need to do combat to protect that kind of identity? It's a great question. Yeah. A, great, a great question. And I think in the first place, let's, let's stipulate that uh, you mentioned there's probably going to be contested midterm elections. And I'm, maybe this is ridiculous, airing the day after the election. <laughs> of course there will be. There will be some recounts. There will be uh, some runoffs in various locations. This is what happens after elections. And this has always been what happens after elections. There have always been contested electoral outcomes. There have been some in the past where there was no clear winner. I, I don't want to ruffle any feathers. I don't want to rub anybody the wrong way. But in case you are not familiar with the history, dear listener, nobody won the 1876 or the 2000 presidential elections. Choices had to be made and, and a great many people, and this was influential in our, our current spike of polarization, right, particularly the 2000 election. Choices had to be made. Either the ballots could be counted a certain way or they couldn't. A choice was made and Bush was essentially declared the winner because the method of counting ensured that Bush won. It wasn't as polarized, however, because Al Gore conceded. It wasn't as polarized, however, in 1876 because, like it or not, Samuel Tilden went into uh, obscurity and lost, and Rutherford B. Hayes, who probably actually lost the election, took the White House, ended Reconstruction, and doomed the South to years, decades, maybe centuries oh, yeah. of problems. Uh, this is always the case that there are contested outcomes. It is not always the case that the outcomes have to be battled over, and the problem is the question of identity. But if we're looking at polarization as something that is static, unchanging, here to stay, that could only be true if the identities in question are static, unchanging, and will always be true, which raises a really important question. Are the identities in question permanent? As a professor who teaches people to teach the Bible, as somebody who values the Bible, as somebody as a person of faith, I desperately, desperately hope that people will not continue to place all of their identity in their politics. And so I harbor great hope that the polarization can be lifted as people come to different understandings of identity. I, I recognize that's not the cultural trend. It, it has not been the cultural trend. If, if you want to know what the data suggests, there's a considerable spike in polarization in the United States that began in 2005 and has continued ever since. But my hope is in the Lord. <laughs> And that hope applies here, too. Yes, yes. So 2005, that would have been the um, around the time the, uh, the Iraq war was, well, the occupation was starting to escalate. Um, then we have a troop surge around that time. It was post uh, the 2004 election between uh, Kerry and Bush. Mm-hmm. So, but mm-hmm. at least most of our listeners probably were young, if not 
entirely in existence or consciousness by the time by that time. <laughs> so for those of us uninitiated to those uh, times and had different concerns, such as uh, when the new uh, Caillou episode or whatever would air, I, I don't know. Um, what was going on in 2005 that started this current set of polarization we're in, if you, if you have a context in mind? I don't have a clear-cut answer to that, and I don't know that social scientists and political scientists do either. There are a number of factors that are at play, one of which is the Iraq War was not going well in 2005. That is absolutely part of it. Uh, another factor that's definitely at play is that the electoral strategy that saw George W. Bush prevail over John Kerry was, and, you know, people of faith may take some exception to my describing it this way, but I, you know, I was there at the time. I was a voter. I voted in that election, and I voted very uncomfortably, recognizing that the Bush campaign utilized homophobic bigotry to scare people into opposing John Kerry. And there was a, a definite base strategy, right? You talk about uh, one, one of the aspects of, of political polarization very often is that political parties begin running what they call base strategies or base polarization strategies, where it doesn't matter whether or not you appeal to moderates. The important thing is to turn out your base and make sure your base shows up in big numbers and you can win. Well, 2004, it's, it was conducted functionally as a base election. And Karl Rove was, the, was George W. Bush's strategist at the time, and they bombarded Middle America in particular, with the, with homophobia. And you had to stop John Kerry or else the gays would take over the country and destroy everything you cared about. And that was absolutely not the way previous presidential elections in my lifetime that I could remember were conducted. And I remember I remembered thinking at the time that this was probably sowing the seeds of a backlash. And I, I do think that, that that was part of this. If you want to know the story of Obergefell and you want to know where uh, the gay rights movement's triumph began, I actually think that the 2004 election is a significant waypoint in that. Now, recognizing that that is a factor as well, right? So if, if the polarization spikes in 2005 and it's right after a particularly contentious culture war election and it's uh, at a time period when a war that is deeply divisive is not going well, it's at a time period in which... And this matters as well, I believe. Social media is really beginning to take oh, off. Oh, yeah. Because you have Facebook uh, founded in 2004, if I'm not mistaken. And by 2005, Facebook's expansion is, is really growing. Now, Facebook at that point in history was not yet the, you know, the, the cesspit of baby boomer politics that it's become today. <laughs> I, I think I can say that. Back when it used to be cool, according to the youth. Well, it was. It was. The thing you got to understand is initially on Facebook, you couldn't be on Facebook unless you either were part of a college or invited to be on it by somebody who was. So it was exclusively the province of the young and the hip. And for the record, I was no longer in college. So I knew about the Facebook, but I didn't get to be part of it right away. Uh, I, I joined it a couple of years later. But social media is there. Uh, MySpace was there, right? Social media is in its infancy. They don't have all the algorithms that, that we are familiar with or, or suffer under at this in this day and age. They did not yet have those. But social media is there. The Iraq War is happening. It's right after a particularly contentious election. All of that factors into the beginning of the rise of polarization or the uh, – we might even talk about it as a launching point of polarization in the United States. But again, the rest of the world followed suit within five to seven years. And if you, 
you know, why do you think it happened within five to seven years? I attribute it to it being the rise of social media at the time. And then you had an economic collapse hap- happen in the United States that did affect the rest of the world. At least in the United States, you had a, a war that was going terribly. Economic collapse perpetuated by a ruling a capitalist class. And then you know, had the uh, beginning of a presidential campaign, at least with Obama, that seemed poised to turn the whole system up on its head and resolve a lot of the issues that were uh, plaguing the country at the time. That failed uh, for the most part. Uh, it was more of the same, so people were disillusioned. And with that, you had more exasperating economic circumstances hitting the Rust Belt and Middle America to where uh, the influx of social media, people like uh, Rush Limbaugh and all the other uh, people on the right were able to exasperate that moment and take advantage of it. Um, and, and this new idea of the Tea Party arose. Now we're talking five to seven years. So that will put us, put us what, uh, 2015-ish? So between from 2005 to, to around 2015-ish, uh, we, we saw the rise of a populist movement in the, uh, in the right, and the left was beginning to uh, ramp up its, uh, its own populist message with the rise of the Sanders campaign, which unfortunately all those times it tried to succeed flopped, uh, but formed a strong progressive base in the Democratic Party not seen before. At least in our in, in my lifetime. Yeah, yeah. There's, I mean, there's always that progressive undercurrent, but they were like the crazy uncle you tolerate at Thanksgiving, mm-hmm. and and they they didn't appear to be the the predominant faction. But the the perception changes, and what's interesting, I, I think, to consider is whether or not the reality changed or just the perception. Because another factor, everything you mentioned, I think, is fair. I think those are fantastic. Uh, explanations, but it's very U.S. centric and presidential well, centric. So the rise of social media is not. And we should also mention that I think it's 2011 or so when the – maybe it's 2007. I don't remember exactly when the first iPhone comes out. I think so. But social media's power ends up being magnified by the, the presence of the smartphone. And again, that's not an American-centric incident. So social media, absolutely a factor. From my point of view, maybe, maybe because of my upbringing, I, I was more involved in the uh, populist uh, emergence of the, uh, the right uh, – so a lot of that I saw was beginning to form with the uh, conspiracy movement. Within the right, uh, you had people like uh, Alex Jones, who is now a negative billionaire. Yeah, so social media is coming into its own. People start getting their smartphones. The internet, chat rooms, things like that are starting to come into their own. And, and one thing that we forgot to mention was that Fox News begins to come into its own. There is Fox News already existed, but there, there was not the same kind of competition within the media space. So all of that is happening. And at the same time, right, you have, as the Internet grows, the financial model of the local media collapses. The advertising dollars are no longer there for newspapers. Many newspapers are completely free in the mid-2000s, if, if memory serves. It's around that time that people start experimenting with a paywall. But why would you pay to get your news from this source on the Internet when this other source has it for free? Mm. But so what starts to happen is we end up with this uh, earthquake within news sources during this time period as well, which coincides with the rise of social media, the presence of cell phone, uh, smartphones specifically, and the Great Recession, as you mentioned. So all of that is taking place at the same time. And none of that is constrained to the United States. The United States is, according to the data, more polarized than, than the vast majority of other countries, and certainly more polarized, according to the data, than any other liberal democracy is right now. But the United States also had a head start. It is 
not necessarily something that is uniquely terrible about the United States. How so? There's no reason to think. Uh, just look at the the recent elections, for example, in Phil, in the Philippines or in Brazil, which is is ongoing. Right, the recent Brazilian presidential election ended up going to a runoff, and you have the the current president, who who many would describe as fascist adjacent, competing against the his predecessor, who has been released from prison from corruption charges, and who is probably. Uh, not you know, not being an expert in Brazilian politics, let me just say that it is being portrayed in many media sources as a fascist adjacent candidate versus a socialist. against a socialist yes. candidate. I don't know if he's socialist adjacent, if he's actually socialist. Lula is the socialist-ish candidate. Uh, Bolsonaro is the fascist-ish candidate, and he was a former member of the Brazilian military, I believe mm-hmm. too. And if there are listeners not really initiated uh, initiated in Brazilian politics, Brazil does have a history of military dictatorships taking power in the country. So there is a little bit of more of an extra stakes um, in this election than I'd say U.S. ones in terms of actual potential for a potential coup. He's also threatened a coup. Yeah. If he loses. Uh, <laughs> you, you never know. By the premiere of this episode, Brazil could have already had a coup. It could have happened. Yeah. Well, no need for a coup while he's still the president. Yeah. I don't know when the runoff date is, though. Uh, but so at any rate, there's no guarantee that Brazilian politics – will not become more polarized than American politics by social science metrics. There's no guarantee that what's going on in the United Kingdom, I don't know if you have paid attention at all to Not the, much. Please initiate the, me. The, I, I, After my boy Boris uh, was gone, I didn't care. <laughs> well, uh, your boy Boris collapsed in a, a fever dream of, of incompetence and scandals. That, Probably a little bit of alcohol, too. That, that no American president could ever aspire to. Just too much too much corruption, too little competence. However, uh, he was succeeded by the, the, the system in place with the conservative party is that they have an election in the parliamentary party. So only the conservatives in parliament get to vote on who should be the next prime minister until they narrow it down to two candidates. And then the party membership chooses. So it's like uh, it, it would be as if the Republican National Convention or the Democratic National Convention got to choose the president. And the party convention, essentially, the party vote, chose a, a member of parliament to be the new prime minister that the parliamentary party did not want. And she very quickly, and I mean within 30 days of being made prime minister, destroyed the British economy utterly. She announced a sequence of economic reforms that caused the pound to utterly collapse. As the pound started to collapse, there was a rush on bonds, so I, I don't know how deep in the weeds we should get on the economics. Do it. Do it. But what has happened essentially is that if many people in the United Kingdom live with uh, adjustable rate mortgages on their homes, and because of this prime minister's policies, many people's mortgages have jumped 500 to 600, we'll say dollars instead of pounds per month. They were already facing a cost of living crisis because of the situation in Ukraine and the cost of energy prices. Uh, they're already getting hammered by inflation in a higher degree than the United States is. Life is bad in the United Kingdom for many people right now. And the prime minister in one month just it just exacerbated it significantly. So maybe labor stands a chance. Labor has very rarely stood a chance. And in, 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 in generic polling, labor is 30 points ahead right now. The prime minister's approval ratings are 55 points underwater. And so polarization in the United Kingdom has only been increasing. Boris Johnson, your boy Boris, as you called him, <laughs> had deployed a culture war strategy to help stay in power. And many of the conservative party have deployed a, a culture war strategy to help win elections. But you have fragmentation now 
of the conservative party that's actually reminiscent of things that the Republican Party has experienced to a more limited degree over the last decade. And so you have within the conservative party different subgroups, each of whom are competing against each other. And so the conservative party is no longer capable of uniting. As polarization has increased in the United Kingdom, because they have more parties than the United States has, they have ended up fragmenting. And you end up in a situation where, although Labour seems very likely to have a majority in the next parliament, I am very skeptical that any party is likely to have a majority 10 years from now. And there's going to have, it's going to have just massive ramifications. But at any rate, polarization in the United Kingdom is nuking their political system as they have understood it. It's ongoing. Nobody's entirely sure where it ends. Uh, they may literally change many aspects of how their, their democracy works. Some of the parties that are, are rising in power now uh, believe in a different system of election. They want to eliminate the, Many of them want to eliminate the House of Lords entirely. You know, will they have the votes? Will they not have the votes? Nobody knows. Nobody knows. Polarization in the United States is several years further down the line than in other countries, but that's no guarantee that 100 years from now, polarization in the United States will be the headline in the history books. Polarization in other places is also just exploding. It's always been the norm. We've always been divisive. Well, eh, there's always been competition. There's always been electoral contrasts, but that doesn't necessarily have to mean that you treat the other person as an enemy, right? Going back to where we started, combat and identity. Mm-hmm. Combat and identity are, are increasing everywhere in ways that they did not always, had not always been. Would you say that identity uh, increases because of the advent of a different form of communication with social media? Back then, people wouldn't be able to contribute to the creation of new uh, media items, for example. Uh, you'd have news articles, journalism, books published that um, the, average, uh, the average Joe wouldn't really be able to participate and co-create with. Now, with the advent of social media, your identity is formed by the content you consume, by the interactions you have online. The sort of a, This medium has become the message in which we communicate our own, we, we use it to communicate the own identity we're forming and being formed into. So would you say then that the uh, identity aspect of polariz- polarization is at least being dramatically increased because of the ability to craft our own identity on social media, such as being on the right, being on the left, being at a certain winter festival in January two years ago or not? Well, it's a, it's a great question, Samuel. It's too broad. Well, no, but I mean, there's there. Okay, fair. There, we could go. We could have an entire podcast series spent I, answering that question. But but let me unpick a couple of things there, right? And 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 we can go in the direction you're most intrigued by. But identity formation has absolutely been changed by the advent of social media, and because the process of identity formation has changed and is changing. That is something that warrants much greater thought. And again, speaking as a Christian, we also need to differentiate here between the descriptive and the prescriptive. We can talk about the way most people's identities are formed. We can talk about the way most people's identities used to be formed. But we also should should give some thought to the way identities ought to be formed. I, I think that matters. And I know perhaps many people expecting us to talk about Polarization and or electoral reform don't expect to hear any uh, thoughts on discipleship. But let's just at least mention in passing that a significant parts of the polarization that are happening worldwide are an indictment of the church's history of discipling worldwide. 
those who have been well discipled, discipled in the way that we see in the, the pages of Matthew, discipled in the way that, that Jesus wants his disciples to disciple others, are not going to be people who find their identity in politics and are not going to be subject to the same degree, same levels of polarization. It's okay to care about politics deeply. It's okay to care about the stakes. I believe God cares about the stakes. But the idea that this other person is your enemy and needs to be combated and that your political affiliation is a source of identity or a, a place worth placing your identity is fundamentally idolatrous. It is a sin. It's terrible. And it's an indictment of the church's discipleship history. But going back to the question of how identities are formed, when I was in junior high and in high school, I had different phases, different phases I could go through. And at one point, there was a year where I had long hair. It was down to my shoulder. I wore wow. purple corduroy pants every day. And I wasn't really a skater or a stoner, but I was trying to figure out, you know, is that a way for me to fit in? Is that, is that who I'm going to become in junior high and high school? And there is no permanent electronic digital record of that face. Nice. Because social media didn't exist yet. When I was in college, I grew a goatee just from the bottom of my chin that was three to four inches long. And it was, that was it. It was nasty. If you, you those of you who have not seen me, my beard is not that thick. It was a terrible, it was a distasteful choice in the extreme. The guys on my floor called me the Pharaoh. I fell asleep once with my door open and my arms crossed, lying on my back. I, I looked like a pharaoh in repose, right? <laughs> it was an Egyptian pharaoh's goatee. That's what I had. No mustache, just from the bottom of my chin. You will not find a picture of that online because it does not exist. The process of identity formation, from a descriptive perspective, growing up in the 90s was that I could try on different hats. I could see, am I this person? Am I that person? Does this feel right to me? Does that feel right to me? And it was like picking from a menu and you could just change your mind. And there were no permanent repercussions. There was nothing that anybody could hold over my head indefinitely because there was no permanent record of it. Social media creates this permanent record where the dumbest idea you ever have can probably not be erased or run away from. And that does affect identity formation in really profound ways. Significant parts of cancel culture or significant parts of polarization, because I do see them as linked phenomenon, are probably best understood as the absence of forgiveness within society. Again, we're supposed to be salt, we're supposed to be light, and bringing more forgiveness into the world, not less, is absolutely something we as Christians are supposed to do. Mm -hmm. And the absence of forgiveness in our society is itself, again, an indictment of the way that we as a church have been salt and have been light. However, recognize that throughout much of history, society was maybe not as good at forgiving as I would like to think, because society was better at forgetting. But the internet and the rise of social media have ensured that society no longer forgets. And if you're not good at forgiving and you cannot forget, this is where we end up. You just, you, the rage will just continue to increase to where... You're forced to take action against your enemies for a moral crusade. It seems like it. Well, it'll, it'll continue to increase until it doesn't. And, you know, political scientists have taken a look at what they call depolarizing events in other societies. And 
The good news is societies can depolarize. The bad news is liberal democracies have never before been as polarized as what the United States is. The method for depolarization historically has involved violence, which is not necessarily to say outright civil war, but they have often involved violence. And afterwards, there's a, a clearing of the air and the temperature comes down. And usually it has to be followed by a period of openness, transparency, and trust. But that requires a willingness to forgive or at least to forget. I've seen a lot of, um, I've seen an article by the Atlantic, you probably read this one too, um, talking about the, uh, the uh, potential of a civil war in the U.S., but comparing it not necessarily towards our analogous comparison to the first one, but comparing it to the uh, troubles that Ireland faced, mm. to where their, mm-hmm. pol- their, uh, their civil conflict wasn't necessarily of states seceding and all that. It was more so a dedicated group of terrorists who carried out acts against the United Kingdom, their oppressors, but also s- sought to uh, prevent the, uh, the collapse of their identity um, as the Irish people with the occupation of uh, Northern Ireland. This podcast doesn't endorse any uh, territorial claims. We're, we're, we're above that. But it compared it to the U.S. in the sense of we may not see a civil war where states are seceding, but more so a group of very radicalized, very, very passionate, uh, let's call them what they are, terrorists, uh, who try and carry out uh, their, uh, their acts to destabilize society. They probably won't win, but that, that conflict was solved over time, so I don't know if that's necessarily the most uh, accurate comparison for well, the trajectory of our conflict. I hate to be a Debbie Downer. I don't but think we're going to avoid it. Well, no, I was going to say even the idea that the, the Northern Ireland conflict was resolved is no longer true. Oh, yeah. Oh, the, the, yeah. Com- the United Kingdom's vote, choice, and follow-through on leaving the European Union has reawakened a lot of the problems in Northern Ireland. Because it was about identity and because some of those questions of identity are intractable, or at least have seemed intractable, it was just... Uh, it was in a coma. It was in a slumbering state, and there is some risk of it reawakening. The, the question of identity, and identities that don't go away, is the real problem. Again, looking at American political polarization, I actually do harbor some hope because I have a hard time believing that political partisan politics are a satisfying enough identity for people to to take that to the grave. Uh, I myself have experienced a political evolution of sorts. I'm I'm not the same voter I was 20 years ago. I haven't completely flipped sides or anything, but I'm I'm not exactly where I was 20 years ago. And most people I know are not where they were 20 years ago. And that gives me some hope that those identities are not intractable and are not unchangeable. And again, you know, my again, my hope is in the Lord, which makes me think maybe maybe if we do a better job of forgiving and a better job of discipling and if we do a better job of evangelizing, that more partisan identities can come unstuck. Mm-hmm. And that that could be a contributing factor to a gradual depolarization in the United States. I hope. I I want to share the same optimism, but I don't. I don't know. There are people with such a connection to the uh, the former president to the, where it's almost cult like. I mean, no other leader, at least in the history Fair. of the U.S., maybe besides uh, besides Reagan, uh, has had that much of a connection with their uh, their base. I mean, P. 
people are still waving around Trump 2020 and 2016 uh, yeah. merch everywhere. <laughs> he is literally the Messiah of the of some of these people. The second coming, so literally the second coming of Christ. As some people in social media, yeah. at least with the QAnon movement, a lot of the militia movements. Not that they're all one and the same. They're all so broad and different, but they all share that same idea that there is a deep state trying to trying to fight against the uh, the Messiah, Donald J. Trump. That the only way to win is through violence and overthrowing the elect- the the current order of systems. They tr- they tried to do a coup and it failed. I just I don't know if well we can de-radicalize them so fast. I don't know if it's possible. Well, I don't know that it'll be fast, but you know, bringing up Reagan, I think, is actually somewhat instructive because people until Trump, this has kind of stopped since the Trump years, but until Trump, Republican primaries were often contested over who is and who is not the true. Reaganite, who mm. is and who is not the true heir to Reagan, and who was and who was not the true heir to Reagan was always debatable. And the reason that it was always debatable is because Reagan was a very old man when he was in office, and Reagan had Alzheimer's, and Reagan disappeared from public life relatively quickly. He didn't cast this long shadow as an active political philosophy. Reaganism functionally linked to Ronald Reagan himself, ceased to exist the minute Reagan was out of office. And so people can all try to appropriate his legacy, but there was no clear way to adjudicate who is and who is not Reagan. Right now, it is possible to adjudicate who is and who is not truly Trumpian because Trump's out there giving endorsements. Trump is a very old man. This will not last forever. And when Trump dies, DeSantis will rule. If you think DeSantis is the no-brainer successor, the I problem hope, I is hope not. the problem is, and this is just an this is historically an ironclad rule of politics. We've seen many of those fall or change in the last decade. I know, but historically, an ironclad rule of politics has been: jerks do not win major national elections, and you will have a hard time finding people who personally know and actually like Ron DeSantis. You can look into it. People who know him say that he doesn't just play a jerk on TV. He's not a good guy. That seems an unlikely person to be able to curry enough favors to win a nationwide election. If everybody in the country is out to stop you because they want what you want, you have to be able to draw allies to yourself. And it's not clear to me what uh, what allies within the Republican Party Ron DeSantis is going to be able to draw. Besides the MAGA Republicans, but he already has them for the most part. He has them unless or until Donald Jr. runs. That's true. Oh, boy. What if Jared Kushner decides to throw his hat in the ring? No, he's too too pro-Israel. The uh, MAGA Republicans won't like him too much. But does he split the MAGA vote and allow somebody else to win? The MAGA MAGA people think he's the one who sabotaged uh, the Donald Trump administration. Okay, but what about the uh, MAGA evangelicals? Yeah, he could maybe win them over. I don't see. Or Mike Pompeo. Mike, Mike Pompeo, Mike Pence, I don't see a clear-cut successor. And I don't think Trump may live long enough to anoint a immediate successor. But for number one, he has to go away first. And right now, if anybody rises high enough, Trump himself will take them out. Like because, DeSantis. as you mentioned, Trump still has uh, designs on the office. Uh, again, we're recording this in October. By the time you hear this, Trump may have announced his candidacy for the presidency in, in 2024. With no clear successor, I don't think Trumpism lasts forever. He's too old. 
he's too old for Trumpism to last forever. So that fever will break. It'll break because it will fragment. And 20 years from now, you may have candidates competing to say, to say who is more Trumpy than the other candidate, but the, the values that people associate with Trumpism 20 years from now could end up being antithetical to the actual Donald Trump. That's true. Things change. It's good to not have an, uh, such a linear outlook on the future that everything that is now, that the status quo will still persevere. Things are going to change. And I think that's a lot, at least the generation that will be listening to us, we tend to fall into that kind of mindset that the same thing that's happening today will be going on 10, 15, 20 years from now. We'll still be debating whether it's it's Trump or Biden or whoever it is. I mean, just in, in our lifetime, so much has changed. We we were born in, into a country that was had a surplus in, in their budget for a little bit. I mean, well, we can't even imagine that now. The trillion of, trillions of dollars we're in debt now. Um, not that it matters to everybody. Some of those who subscribe to that modern uh, monetary theory would say otherwise. Um, but... Pandemic killed modern monetary theory. Unfortunately. <laughs> I, I was really liking it, but it's gone. Yeah. Uh, all about to say, at least in our lifetime, we saw the rise of this populist kind of fervor because people didn't feel represented enough in their government. So, I guess it's the name of the game. How do we fix it? Well, that's a conversation for tomorrow. Today, you, my dear listener, should go out and vote. Join us tomorrow as we continue our conversation by talking about some of the solutions to polarization in the form of electoral reform. Tomorrow will be the last episode of Meet Me in the Middle. I want to thank you in advance for coming with me so far on this journey. Please tune in tomorrow for an exciting conversation on ways to make our democracy work for us.